HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. On behalf of our family of hosts, staff, and the millions of listeners who have tuned in since 2009, we want to wish you happy holidays and ask for your support as we launch our daily in-house news coverage. Please consider making us a part of your end-of-year giving in 2013. Your membership donation is tax-deductible and the best way to show you believe in our work and the importance of a free, food-focused media resource. Consider donating today at heritageradionetwork.org by clicking the Donate button. Thanks for your support and enjoy the show. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and today we have uh, John Bonet in the house. Uh, John Bonet is the wine editor for the San Francisco Chronicle, and he is a multi-James Beard award-winning writer, um, and on top of his two James Beard, uh, James Beard awards, he has multiple nom- uh, nominations, um, and he has a new book out, The New California Wine. It's a book that I wish uh, had been written about a year and a half ago. would have made my uh, researching for the wine list at Lepicho much, uh, much easier. Uh, I think it's a, a, an outstanding book. Uh, uh, congratulations, John. Welcome on the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Um, that's such such a beautiful job on this book. Uh, I, I really love it. it. It chronicles the story of the uh, of some of the the new producers um, in California, and as well as some of the people who have been doing things in uh, this kind of new way, but for a very very long time. Uh, tell us where where you got the idea of of writing this book. It's funny. the The book was probably at least partially written a year and a half ago, but. Uh, uh, such as uh, taking time to get things right. Um, and, of course, whatever was true a year and a half ago isn't true now necessarily. Um, you know, I started really almost as soon as I got to California in 2006. I had shown up um, to take the job as wine editor of The Chronicle, and I had come from New York. I lived in Seattle for six years. So so I knew I knew American wine. I knew wine from the West Coast, and I knew, obviously, California wine pretty well because I'd grown up with it, um, even though I was in New York. Uh, 
And at this time, uh, you weren't a big fan of California wines in 06. No, I, 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 I had been a fan when I was a kid, basically, uh, and it was, wine was just something around our house. But yeah, by, by then it was clear that uh, most of what I was finding in California was not that interesting, was kind of overpriced, was certainly sort of overly ambitious for what it was, and uh, was marked by what in the book is called uh, the era of big flavor, where, um, you know, more was more, uh, and really, um, for a, a good chunk of time, there was uh, enormous value, um, critical value to uh, California producers in kind of going over the top. So yeah, when I arrived, uh, it was a little grim, and, and I was trying to figure out what what there was out there that I could write about, that I would be interested in, that I would want to drink. And you talk about a... Uh, a a very influential moment. You have to decide who is going to be your very first winemaker of the year very shortly after you get this job. Yeah, about three weeks after I land, uh, I have to pick our winemaker of the year. And it, it didn't take too long. It became sort of clear. Uh, I had gone up to uh, Montebello Ridge um, to uh, to actually see the facility that Ridge Vineyards has um, because I knew Ridge well. I knew the work of Paul Draper very well, but uh, I actually sort of wanted wanted to to lay eyes on the place um, and and it became sort of sort of obvious I mean here was a guy who was legendary who had always kind of upheld this iconic American wine uh, as the best that uh, California could do as a wine that really had the equivalent timelessness of the great wines of the world um, and yet had sort of been shifted you know shunted out to to the side because his story wasn't convenient for California he was in the Santa Cruz mountains he wasn't in Napa he didn't make kind of this big, oaky, luscious, super ripe Cabernet. Uh, it was, you know, what what Californians, uh, what California winemakers would sort of derisively call Bordeaux styled, um, as though there was something wrong with uh, with um, with a wine that that didn't sort of, you know, go into maximum overdrive. Uh, and so that was kind of an easy choice. And, and it became clear in part because one of the things Paul really believes in is, is minimalism in your winemaking and really finding a way to express a great terroir, uh, that that would set a theme for, for my time in California. Yeah. And your the next producer you chose for Winemaker of the Year was another one of these uh, producers who had been around for a long time, the winemaker Calera. Josh Jensen, yeah, Josh Jensen. and uh, and sa- same deal, but with Pinot Noir instead of Cabernet. Uh, but you know, same thing. Guy who had sort of become entranced by the the great Burgundies, uh, and when he was basically uh, a post you know, a graduate student, and had come back to California on this crazy two year quest to find limestone, which is a relative rarity on the West Coast, and wanted to to make wines that he felt would 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 uphold the best traditions of the great Pinot Noir of the world. So what were some of the early experiences with finding the new California? Not, not just these old uh, stalwarts who had been doing things in, uh, in a way that, that you found interesting for, for a long time, and, and certainly I, I love those wines very much as well, um, but the people who were the next generation who were, who were changing things, moving out of the, the dark ages of the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. There, there were there were little hints here and there, but I think somewhere somewhere maybe around two thousand seven two thousand eight, uh, I started finding folks. I'd say Abe Schoner um, from the Scolium Project was an early one, um, just in terms of someone who was really 
um, a deep thinker in the wine industry. Abe's obviously a, a former philosophy professor um, and who wanted to to ask questions um, really in a practical way as well as a philosophical way and to make wines that, that pushed the edge and really sort of prompted uh, tough considerations about what California was. And it's funny because at the time, one of his assertions was that um, one of the indigenous traits of California was high alcohol. Um, and I think that's a conversation that's evolved. But so I found people people like him, people like Steve Mathiasen, who was this great viticulturist by day and then with the rest of his time was making this, this really radical white wine in Napa uh, that combined the traditions of Friuli and Bordeaux. Uh, people like Duncan, uh, Duncan Myers and Nathan Roberts from Arnott Roberts, who were two native California boys who just decided they, they wanted, they believed that California could make wines similar to the wines that they enjoyed, which as often as not were from the old world, uh, and really also had lived, had grown up in Napa and remembered the classic bones of Napa in the early days. And so, you know, there was just one after another after another, uh, you know, Kevin Kelly and... Um, it, it seems like there, it, it, it kind of reached a a certain tipping point. There were a couple of early people, and now there's just a, a profusion. I know when we opened up Dalanima, I, I never, this was, you know, in 2007... I couldn't imagine putting uh, a California Chardonnay on on a list, much less by the glass. But you know, five years later, when we opened up La Picho, we had Lioco Chardonnay by the glass, and I was exuberantly enthusiastic to showcase uh, to showcase these wines. And um, it, why do you feel that there has been this just a huge surge, kind of all at the same time? What what led to this tipping point? Well, I think you know, yeah, there, there were more and more of these folks, and I think it was it was in 2010 when I was um, I was uh, working on a thing for Sever, and they they asked me to write kind of a, a bigger piece about sort of the state of California at the time, and it just something clicked, and I realized that you know these weren't sort of you know efforts on the fringe, you know, folks like Lioko, like like Pay Vineyards, like Donkey and Goat, uh, like Literai. Um, they were, um, you know, there were folks who had been at it a long time, like Ted Lemon of Literai, like Paul Draper and Josh Jensen, uh, and there were these new folks, but that there was this this core of winemakers who were really asking the same questions and, and, and who had this belief in the global relevance of California that, that really in some way hadn't been uh, around since the era of the Robert Mondabis and the Warren Winyarskis and, and all of the pioneers of the 70s and, and even early 80s, that, um, that this notion that, that California had bigger questions to answer than simply getting 98 points um, had returned. And rather than operate in this this slightly uh, perilous economic sphere in which you you prostrated yourself before a handful of critics and you made wines that were kind of immediately approachable and and I, I guess what they would say is that the market enjoys, which I think is kind of a cynical way to look at uh, at wine, um, not in that the people shouldn't enjoy it, but that the notion that people have this sort of lowest common denominator of taste that it all has to be impact and so there were enough winemakers who were asking the same questions I was, who had the same frustrations I did with the state of the state, that it became really evident that this was going to become more than just kind of a fringe movement. And this was going to become, if nothing else, sort of a significant counterculture to the the big flavor uh, realms that had dominated. 
Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about those big flavor guys. All right. Have you found that uh, any of them are kind of pulling back? And a few years ago, Eric Asimov wrote an article about uh, about Kistler and, and some of the changes they're making to make these more restrained styles. Have you seen any of that happening? Has there been any pushback from some of these big these big flavor guys saying, hey, why wasn't I included in that book? Or that that's that that tells, you know, a very small part of the story that's not important. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, there there are people who are frustrated they're not in there. Um, and there are definitely folks who think that this is um, me sort of looking through a prism. And I would say, you know, look, I, there's 125 people in the book. I had a pretty high benchmark for quality and, and not just not just wine quality, but also people who I felt were were looking at California through um, through a thoughtful, decent, you know, seriously terroir minded view. And, you know, there's there's no winemaker in California who's going to claim that they just don't care about terroir, possibly excepting the folks at Camus, um, who, you know, Chuck Wagner sort of has prided himself on really not caring. Um, but uh, but on balance, you know, yeah, they all think it, but it's just not there in the bottle. And, and, and I can say that having tasted thousands and thousands of wines each year that, you know— you know, for all of the press releases, for all of the kind of blather and email that you get, it's really evident when you start tasting who's in the game and who isn't. And so, you know, there's, I mean, sure, this is, this is a slice of what is out there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I think, I think actually to, to your question, there are, um, there are a handful of folks who are looking at their style and deciding they want to, to step back from the, mm-hmm. the edge a bit. I mean, um, Kistler being one example, I think maybe the best example being uh, Wells Guthrie at Copain, uh, who, you know, who absolutely enjoyed the benefits of Robert Parker's munificence and, and you know, and enjoyed sort of high scores and that, you know, and, and mailing lists and all of that. And then basically decided he didn't, you know, he, he, he experimented a little bit with picking earlier and and then decided that really that that was the direction for him. I think Adam Tolmach at uh, at Ojai, who's a guy who's been in the industry a long time, um, you know, again made these experiments with picking earlier and mm-hmm. a, a few of his vineyards, and decided he liked the results. And I mean, he got slammed in terms of his scores for doing it, specifically for the early harvested wines. And so it's one of these things where you know, as much as sure there there is a a uh, philosophical bent at work in the book, but I think that there's a philosophical bent and kind of a nasty one. Uh, in the the defenders of big flavor that, you know, I I think I'm poking at it with a stick, but I think they're going to have to face their own economics and the choices that they've made. Almost reminiscent of some of the very modern producers producers in in Barolo, for instance, who started embracing new oak and riper riper, uh, grapes and said that the more traditional producers uh, were making flawed, uh, thin wines and and not the end not of roto fermenters. The end of roto, right? And it, it's not that both of these styles can coexist peacefully. It's that my style is right and the only way that it should be. And if you're not doing it like me, you're doing something terribly wrong. Sure. I, I mean, I think it's interesting now that a lot of the folks who who were fans of this bigger style now. Having realized that we're not going to go away, that the, that the new California producers are not going to go away, and the people who like them, me, you, whoever, are not going to go away, the, the, the new buzzword is diversity, that now they think there should be a diversity of styles, which 
arguably enough, sure. I mean, there should be a diversity of styles. My argument would be that there should be a diversity of styles that can be made uh, in a in a sort of traditional way and don't require kind of dark magic in the cellar and reverse osmosis and deacidification and all the things that um, permitted big flavor to come into being. But sure, there can be a diversity of and styles. And certainly the vineyard as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, but that's, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, picking optimally ripe fruit and not raisins uh, would be a good place to start in terms of of having a conversation about uh, a range of styles. But but what's really interesting to me uh, in, in it is that this is a convenient argument for folks who manage to throw all of the Paul Drapers and Josh Jensen's of the world, all the kind of traditionalists of, uh, of California, out into the cold for 15 years and basically sort of disenfranchise them because they wouldn't play along. So it's curious to me now that there should be diversity when um, there was a time that there was absolutely no uh, tolerance of diversity in California wine. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that point, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, I have a million more questions to ask you, uh, but thanks so much. We'll be right back with more of uh, John Bonet and the new California wine here on In the Drink. In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we're here with John Bonet with his new book, The New California Wine, uh, A Guide to the Producers and the Wines Behind a Revolution in Taste. Uh, I didn't say this at the, at the top, uh, uh, but I really do think that this is the definitive book on these wines right now. I actually don't even... Uh, if, if there were many books on it, I'd still imagine that it would be the definitive, but the, your timing I think is, is impeccable. Um, the, the book is, is beautifully written. The photographs are, are, are stunning, um, and incredible maps in the back. Uh, uh, very, very, very helpful. I think written well for, uh, for someone in the industry like me, uh, as, as a reference guide, um, the producers I don't know of in here, I, I am uh, quickly searching out, and uh, also written well for for a, a consumer because there are lots of just great stories. Just uh, it's it's easy to follow. Um, you really get a sense of, of the people as well. So congratulations on this book. I, and my I my editor awesome. thanks you because when I was blowing all my deadlines, uh, <laughs> the one incentive was that if we if we missed our publication deadline, that um, that we would kind of miss uh, a good window when these wines are really important. Yes, uh, it's it's it seems to have come out at, at 
at least in, in New York, you can go into any decent wine store and find these wines in, in, a, in a wine shop. It's, that these wines are having a moment. I, and I, I like it. I feel like it's a new sense of um, almost uh, patriotism, that it, it's exciting to be able to promote. I love when we have tourists who come into uh, to the restaurant from another country and say, I can give you a, an American wine. Uh, yeah. I, I never thought that I would kind of become, you know, yeah, the, this kind of, uh, I would end up in this sort of flag waving position, but, um, but there is something really glorious about being able to be this proud of American wine. And I think, uh, uh, for a lot of folks, especially on the East coast who always had a distance because they couldn't find wines that, that represented, um, you know, this continuum of global wine culture to them, um, to be able to show sort of the bounty of America is is really a proud moment. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the process of you writing this book. Um, I, I think it sounds like a, a total blast to be able to go travel all over California, hang out with these incredible winemakers. Um, can you talk about some of the the uh, the, the highlights and, and the challenges? Uh, I know one one of the challenges that uh, that you wrote about in the book was when you're hanging out with Ted Lemon, driving through one of his vineyards, and he had this just absolutely profound quote. Um, but you're in the back of a jeep, jostling up around, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when when he he was saying we we've, we've lost touch, we've lost touch with Goethe's uh, observational approach to nature. Yeah, and of course, bouncing all over the place trying to scribble this down. Um, it was a blast. The, the the part of it that was in the field was a blast. The part of it that was me sitting around at my dining room table till midnight every night was less of a blast. But um, there was there was a lot of ground that I needed to cover. Obviously, um, a lot of it came from uh, from just you know work and and reporting I did for uh, for my job. Um, but there were some really some really neat pieces. Yeah, get, getting out into the field with Ted is um, kind of this. Um, mind-blowing lesson in in terroir and dynamics. Same with David Hirsch. When you go out to Hirsch Vineyards uh, and go out into this ridge, uh, this kind of King Lear-esque scene um, in the winter, where the the wind is whipping and the rain is coming down, um, and and then and then things like um, the the end of the table wine chapter in the book, where uh, I went out to, and I, I very much specifically wanted to try and do this to uh, a, a big industrial vineyard in Madera County, which is kind Kind of the the southern San Joaquin Valley, uh, just to see what 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 does it look like to see how California farms wines for what I call brand California for the sort of cheap undifferentiated table wines of the world and well, you know, how, how does French Columbard look when it's farmed at twenty five tons an acre? Uh, so. So there was there was a lot of interesting stuff to see, and I, and I thought it was important um, to give it. And and my photographer Eric Castro uh, and I talked a lot about this 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 concept this this notion of a road trip uh, where you know for folks who might never have come to these vineyards and and might never get there because there many of them are out in the back forty. Uh, to, to get a sense of, of what the, the new geography is. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a road trip that I hope to go on at some point. It sounds, uh, it sounds I'm sure really you have air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, we've, we've had a, a lot of the, uh, the, the producers you speak about on, on our show. Um, and, and even Jasmine Hirsch, who I've known for years, but I've never been to her vineyard. It's like, it is a far, 
far, far way away from you know from downtown Sonoma. Uh, it is you know you're, you're you're traveling two and a half hours or something like that. Yeah, and then hours. five miles up a dirt road. Yeah, so it, it yeah you you've done some really great investigative reporting on this uh, and, and really appreciate. It. How did how did the writing of the book uh, coincide with your day job as the San Francisco Chronicle wine editor? How did you divide your time up? Um, well, some of it was simply knowing the things that I was going to need to, to try and get to and saying, huh, maybe that would make a good column this week. Uh, and so, you know, certainly there were, there was me trying to, um, to, uh, get out and get the reporting done for, for work so that then it was done and, um, and I had it in my notebook, uh, and could, could then use, you know, bits and pieces for the book. Um, but you know the 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 really the the challenge all along was that this was all happening in real time and so you were saying like a year and a half ago i mean a year and a half ago um there were still probably a handful of producers who hadn't even quite come out there's there's still um a couple producers who we were sort of right to the finish line um Domaine de la Cote, which is um the new uh, Santa Barbara project from uh, Raj Parr and uh, Sashi Mormon and a couple other folks um was i wasn't actually sure if their website was going to be online by the time the book was done. Um, there's at least one producer in the book where I'm, I think they're still waiting on final TTB approval for uh, for their labels. So hopefully by Christmas, uh, when people maybe get the book for uh, for a Christmas gift, the the wines will actually be out on the shelves. Um, but I think that was that was the pleasure of it was seeing that this is this is moving so fast that um, that you know these are you know. We're not talking about, you know, writing about the classifications of Bordeaux. We're talking about something that's completely malleable and just moving at lightning speed. Yeah. And now, now personally, what do you like to drink outside of California wine? I know you're a big champagne fan. I am. I am. Having come from uh, from 11 champagnes at brunch yesterday, uh, that wasn't a bad day. Um, I, I like all sorts of stuff. I, I, I do love champagne. I love uh, German and Austrian wine. I love really good Cru Beaujolais. Uh, I love... Um, I love Italian white wine. I mean, I love mm. Italian wine overall, but um, I've really started to to get back and and fall back in love with things like good suave, which everyone sort of laughs at. But um, but I think yeah, you know, Saturday night, uh, Alyssa and I had a the Pra Monte Grande suave, yeah. and it was outstanding. Yeah, and and you know these are I mean they're you know they they perhaps don't have enough hipster cachet yet. Although I'm convinced Suave will be the hipster wine of 2014. But um, you heard it here, guys. <laughs> Suave will be the hipster wine of 2014. So there's my my grand prediction. Wait, so would you would you classify New California wines as hipster wines? But but I think they go so far beyond that. I, I mean, yeah, sure. The the fact that you can get La Clarine, uh, Morvedra, you know, uh, carbonically fermented Morvedra in in uh, Vinegar Hill, um, probably classifies it as a hipster wine. But I think that I think that the fact that they are American wines and there is a timelessness and there's folks like Calera and Ridge who, for me, fall into this, um, make them wines that, frankly, you could take to almost anyone to, to folks who have been drinking California wine for forty years and in some ways. The they will see in these wines um, the same things that that delighted them a generation ago. Yeah, I brought the uh, the Tyler Benicito Chardonnay to uh, Thanksgiving, and there were definitely some some old school California drinkers at Thanksgiving who absolutely loved it and drank it up. 
Yeah, and I, th- I think one thing you realize is th- this notion that, that I think a lot of Californians have that, you know, there are markets that don't like them, New Yorkers don't like them, they don't like California wine. I think almost anyone in this country wants to like California wine. They just have been waiting for California wines that spoke to their, their tastes and their sensibilities. I agree. And and with that mindset, did you feel immediately welcomed uh, being an East Coaster coming out to California? Or was there some pushback saying, this is going to be the guy who's who's writing about our wines? I did not feel terribly welcomed. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, pe- I, there were certainly plenty of people who were polite, and there were people who were very generous with their time and um, and who were, were kind. But I think uh, there was absolutely some skepticism as to what my palate would bring to the job. And there still is. There's, there's kind of a handful of, of uh, California sort of local writers who just have made a cottage industry out of bitching about my palate, um, which, you know, that's good. If, if I, you know, if, if I've, if I've reached that status, then, then maybe I've done my job. Yeah. Well, I, I there's certainly enough people who, who bitch about the, uh, the Robert Parkers of the world as well. Exactly. We'll, we'll have, you know, this, this is the, this is the, the beginning of the backlash. This is equal, equal opportunity, uh, bitching. Uh, if you were to, when you when you got out there, was your was your beat supposed to be uh, primarily California? Um, or I know I, I've seen recent articles you're covering uh, the rest of the world a little bit more. It was always supposed to be, uh, you know, a global a global focus with obviously a, a very distinct uh, concentration on California. When I got there, the wine section was six to ten pages. Newspapers being newspapers, we don't have quite that much space anymore. We don't have a standalone section. Although I actually kind of like our section combined. I think the food and wine section mm-hmm. uh, in the Chronicle really um, is extraordinary. But um, but you know, there's obviously supposed to be a significant focus. But as, as I always point out, and as I pointed out in the book. Northern California is also a place where a lot of very important importers, uh, notably Kermit Lynch and Martine Sonier, but, but mm-hmm. plenty of other people, got their start where there's new importers who uh, are working. So it's also, frankly, a major uh, sort of importation point for uh, a lot of the very, very good imported wines. So just as in terms of kind of supporting local businesses in, in, in a true sense, um, there's a lot of imported wine that, that needs to be talked about uh, th- that comes through Northern California. And there's a lot of people there who love those wines, who, who have an absolute devotion to them. Yeah. Prior to your time at the Chronicle, um, you worked at MSNBC and, and you also had a uh, food and wine blog. I did. Um, <laughs> in, in, in the primordial days. <laughs> It's called uh, Amused Bush. Amused Bush. Yeah. Amused Bush. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts? But back when, like that was that was kind of an interesting idea. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm being so clever. <laughs> uh, I think I, I think every I had a I, I don't even want to say what the title of my uh, my short lived blog was. Um, but uh, it it seems to me that Calif- the uh, California wine aesthetic has sort of followed the California food aesthetic only 25 years later. That's a, that's absolutely it. And okay. and it's interesting now because the the wines that I talk about in the book very much do dovetail with sort of not not even I would say the Alice Waters school, although it's interesting to see the extent to which say the wine the wine director at Chez Panisse has really um, embraced these wines in an enormous way and kind of all the the children of Chez Panisse if you will um, have have 
you know, exalted in the fact that there's, you know, California wines they want to talk about again. But I think if you look at sort of the, the new style of California cooking, the, the, the Daniel Patterson's and David Kinch's of the world, that there is absolutely a continuity with, uh, with these wines and with this notion that um, there needs to be mastery, but it still needs to show California terroir. All right, John Bonet. I've been uh, a big fan of yours uh, way before I met you, and then uh, feeling is mutual. So. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, you know, inter- introduced to your work by uh, by our mutual friend Talia Baiocchi, who's been singing your praises, and uh, I've been admiring you from uh, afar. Uh, and and luckily, in the last year, we've got to spend some time together, which is just just furthered uh, um, the, my admiration for you. And now kind of culminates with this really just such a beautiful book. Uh, I am, I am happy that this is out in the world and, uh, it, it is something that, uh, that I am, I am purchasing. This will be my holiday gift for people. Um, I've, I've already thought of quite a few, the new California wine, (laughs) uh, congratulations. Thank you so much for, for doing this. This book is awesome. Thanks for having me. And thanks so much for being on the show. This has been in the drink on heritage radio network.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.